Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Magician and the Fool podcast. You have just crossed over the train tracks from the virtual Alexandria, and you have entered the virtual Hermopolis. It's a little bit more of a rough neighborhood over here, but the rent is cheaper, so you got to do what you got to do. In 10 years, this is going to be the hot spot. So, Janice, how's it going? Pretty good. I'm just looking back and forward. Perfect. Okay, so we are continuing our series on ancient esoteric cosmology. And we started with uh, classical Platonism, which I think we did an okay job um, setting the foundation. Just a brief recap of the classical Platonism. You have the ultimate supreme god, also known as the architect or the demiurge. From him come emanations, the noose or mind. In the mind you have the images, also called the forms, the archetypes, um, the universals. And these are the perfect example of all that exists in reality. What we have in reality is a, is a flawed mirror image. We also have the world soul, which is created and is intertwined intimately with the movement of the heavens and the cosmos. And man, which is created and contains some of that world soul. We also talked about the logos, which didn't make an appearance in the Timaeus as far as I could tell, but it was good to talk about. It's a fascinating topic, and I want to continue the dialogue on Logos. Um, Logos, essentially, from my understanding, is a bridge between mind and matter. Does that sound right? Among other things, yes. On a basic level. And that kind of brings me to something I want to talk about as far as terminology really quick, is that um, th something like the Logos is a perfect, ex perfect example. The term, there's no definitive agreed upon definition for that it just depends on your context and the time you were living so the stoics had a different idea of the logos than uh, philo of alexandria than the apostolic catholics and the term is a little bit different depending on the context but i think there's some core fundamental um, things that we can that kind of bridge the different uh, linguistic divides and the cultural divides that we can agree on. Do you think that sounds reasonable? I certainly do. And I would say that the, the Gnostic synthesis of the uh, ecclesiastical apostolic Gnostics, Gnostics rather, I think that's, they took the, all of those prior, you know, perceptions or perspectives on the logos and they, they wove it all together and integrated it into something that made made light of each aspect, and and then that then Jesus became the embodiment of that logos figure to the Gnostic Christians. But for the Hermetists, of course, that logos figure was none other than Hermes himself, or Thoth Hermes, who then became Trismegistos. Uh, you know, who and who became the guiding light, you could almost say the um, the spirit of the Western mystery tradition. Right, right. And that kind of leads into today's topic, which is Hermetism and Hermes. 
and specifically the Poimandres. Um, so why, why are we talking about cosmology? I think it's pretty important to start at the foundation. I'm going to reference the Gospel of Thomas quickly. The Gospel of Thomas, saying number 18, the student said to Yeshua, tell us how our end will be. Yeshua said, have you discovered the beginning and now are seeking the end? Where the beginning is, the end will be. Blessings on you who stand at the beginning. You will know the end and not taste death. Janice, you're going to talk about the cosmogenesis of the Poimandres in the Herpes... Uh, herpes. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the Corpus Hermeticum. I think we need to just start over one last time. No! This is... <laughs> I'll edit this out. You're going to have so much to edit. That's fine. Okay, Janice is going to talk about the cosmogenesis found in the Poimandres of the Corpus Hermeticum, but I'm going to quickly just do a little bit of a compare, comparison with the secret book of John. I'm going to read it quickly, as quickly as I can, and... I think it's very interesting to note how similar these the beginnings of these two books are. The Secret Book of John. It's it's well known that the Christian version, the Christian uh, edition at the beginning is is probably a later edition. But regardless, okay. From the Poimandres of the Corpus Hermeticum. Once, when mind had become intent on the things which are, and my understanding was raised to a great height, while my bodily senses were withdrawn as in sleep, when men are weighed down by too much food or by the fatigue of the body, it seemed that someone immensely great of, of infinite dimensions happened to call my name and said to me, What do you wish to hear and behold, and having beheld, what do you wish to learn and know? Who are you? said I. He said, I am Poimandres, the Naus of the Supreme. I know what you wish, and I am with you everywhere. I wish to learn, said I, the things that are, and understand their nature, and to know God. Oh, how I wish to hear these things. He spoke to me again. Hold in your noose all that you wish to learn, and I will teach you. When he had thus spoken, he changed in form, and forthwith, upon the instant, all things opened up before me, and I beheld a boundless view. All had become light a gentle and joyous light, and I was filled with longing when I saw it. I'll stop there, and then I'm going to switch over to the secret book of John, and just note the similarities. One day John, the brother of James, was going up to the temple. A Pharisee by the name of Arimanios came up to him and challenged him, asking, Where is the teacher you used to follow? John replied, He has gone back to the place from which he came. The Pharisee said, The Nazarene misled you, told you lies, closed your hearts, and turned you away from your ancestral traditions. When I heard these things, I, John, turned away from the temple and went off to a deserted mountain place. I was very unhappy, saying to myself, How was the Savior designated? Why did his father send him into the world? Who is his father? What kind of realm will we go to? For although he told us this realm is modeled on the imperishable realm. He didn't teach us about the latter. All of a sudden, while I was contemplating these things, behold, the heavens opened, and the whole of creation shone with the light from above, and the world quaked. I was afraid, yet behold, a little child appeared before me in the light. I continued to look at him as he became an old man, and he, he changed again, becoming like a young man. 
I didn't understand what I was seeing, but the one likeness had several forms in the light, and those likenesses appeared each through the other, and the vision had three forms. He said to me, John, why doubt? Why be afraid? Don't you know the image? Be not afraid. I am with you always. I am the Father, the Mother, the Son. I am the incorruptible purity. I have come to teach you about what is and what was and what will be in order for you to understand the invisible world and the world that is visible and the immovable race of perfect humanity. Raise your head, understand my lessons. Share them with any others who have received the Spirit who are from the immovable race of perfect humanity. So for me, I think those two books are very similar, or at least those two introductions. They clearly are because they both describe a visionary ascent. And, a con- and when the visionary ascent is made, then there's a connection with a, with a mind of light. Um, the mind of light remains immaterial in the corpus hermeticum. However, you know, in the secret book of John, of course, it, 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 it appears as a self-transforming monad, which emanates itself effortlessly into a shape-shifting trinity. So, you know, they're they're describing almost different modalities um, or different different takes on the same experience. You know, it's it's incontestable that these people are referencing again an actual experience that is produced. The book that is written, you know, consequently, it's also significant in the secret book of John that the Pharisee's name is Arimanius. So, in Christianity, but especially Gnostic Christianity, the uh, Pharisees are, you know, considered to be sort of. We'll just stick to Gnostic Christianity. The Pharisees are considered to be sort of the priesthood of the demiurge or the custodians of the demiurgic tradition because of their obsession with laws, you know, um, restrictive laws and um, also their associate with, uh, association with tolls and money. Um, spiritually, so does that these mean things, that the Gnostics are the original anarchists? No, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> and there's been a lot of talk about that lately, you know. Gnostics are anarchists, Gnostics are Antifa, and I'm sorry, but um, the people who are saying those things are absolutely fools. They shouldn't be co-opting Gnosticism for their own idiotic um, proclivities. They should stick to what they know instead of speaking on things that they don't understand because they make fools of themselves, and they also insult those people who hold these traditions to be sacred and holy. I agree. I think I hit a hot button, so let's get back on track. Sorry, I I threw us off track. That's okay. I mean, it's simply true. Yeah. Um, however, the Arimanius also, so after we touch on that layer with Arimanius, you know, being a Pharisee, you know, the tolls representing the tolls of the archons or the, the payment they expect if you want to be able to cross through their gates, the legalistic aspect representing the, um, you know, the, the, the lawgiver character of the demiurge. And so then these are, you know, hypostatized into a a figure of a Pharisee. And to further drive the point home, they give the Pharisee the name Arimanius. Well, Arimanius is is just a Greek-ized form of uh, Persian Ariman. And and in, in the Zoroastrian religion, which has very deep ties to Gnosticism, um, 
and we'll probably get into that in our Simon Magus episode. Um, but in the in in the Zoroastrian religion, Ariman is of course the, the god of darkness and evil. Uh, yeah, so so a Pharisee with the name of the god of darkness is clearly a representative of the demiurge. It's also interesting because the demiurge is sometimes depicted as being um, lion-headed, and um, you know Ari. Uh, in in Hebrew, I believe means lion. The, the Gnostics are famous for wordplay and double and triple entendres. So, it, you know, it, the the point would not have been missed. So so anyway, you have that, and in a characteristic way, you already have somebody sort of blocking the way because it's Gnostics talking. Whereas the in the Hermetic, in the in the Hermetic approach, it's a little different because he's basically the Hermetist. Who's speaking? Who is actually the her original hermitist, Hermes himself? He's talking about, and we're talking about the man, the sort of man, the man god Hermes, rather than the uh, archetypal Jihauti or Thoth here. Um, mm -hmm. But he was in active contemplation or in introspective meditation, or as Thomas Taylor translated. Uh, from the Neoplatonists, uh, he was he was intellectually energizing, and so he basically his body becomes heavy, and he performs an interior ascent. And what's being described there is someone who is entering into a trance to exit their body. And I think it can be argued that the metaphor of ascending the mountain in the Gnostic narrative is uh, also speaking of that because. Symbolically, the mountain in tradition represents the cosmos, and ascending the mountain is the same as moving through the cosmos, and going and to ascend to go to the temple would be symbolic of entering into the you know the the upper regions of the cosmos, uh, where there's a uh, connecting point with the celestial regions, the celestial realms, um, and in that case, then Arimanius would be uh, symbolic, very literally symbolic, of the spirits that try to restrict our access to those areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see John's heart as being very heavy in this first passage where he's he's feeling a lot of uh, maybe sorrow and, uh, you know, depression perhaps. Well, that actually rem reminds me a little of Proclus as well, who experienced similar depressions because he would experience the noetic ascent to uh, a unio mystica with the with the all or the one, but then he would have to descend again. And when he would return to the awareness of his body, sometimes Proclus was known to have gone into these heavy depressions. And I think, hmm. or Plotinus, I'm sorry, Plotinus is who I meant, not Proclus. Um, please excuse that miss that miss call. But so Plotinus, you know, he'd go through these severe depressions. Now Iamblichus's criticism of him, I think it was Iamblichus, it might have been Proclus, but I believe it was Iamblichus. His attitude was that Proclus hadn't propitiated the material daimons adequately. Plotinus. Yeah, Plotinus. That's what I meant. That the Plotinus hadn't adequately propitiated the material daimons. And because of that was suffering, and if he had 
engaged in his ascent in a more theurgic fashion, which would have been more balanced by um, sort of paying the toll, the toll keepers their due, you could say, then he would have been able to return from the ecstatic union uh, with less of a damage, really, with, with, with less wear and tear. But that, that's an aside, but an interesting aside, I think. Because, you know, <clears throat> when you're talking about Plotinus here, here's, a, here's an actual, you know, human personage who was also doing the same thing that we're reading about in these two texts, performing the ascent. And I think that perhaps um, Plotinus, even though he vigorously argued against the Gnostics, it's funny because I think that Plotinus had some very Gnostic traits. Absolutely. You know, and I think that there's an easy parallel to be drawn between Plotinus there and the, and John, because also neither one of them would be willing to propitiate the material diamonds. So Janice, um, let's move forward. What about the cosmogenesis described in Poimandres, the actual um, birth of the material realm. Can you run us through it? So, you know, essentially, Hermes Trismegistos, you know, he went in, he went into an interior state. His body went to, to a state of quiescence. Now, before I move forward, I do want to draw a parallel to something. So, the quiescence state that Aramis puts his body in is a parallel to the Hermopolitan myth in a sense, because the quiescence of the body, the, the weight of the body, um, where his bodily senses are withdrawn and his understanding is raised to a great height. This is an echo of the Hermopolitan cosmogenesis. In the beginning, there's a darkness and water there's an infinite abyss that is, at, that is at rest. And from the infinite abyss, an island of flame arises. Um, so, so there's sort of an echo here, and I do believe it's significant because of, of the fact that you can see many Egyptian antecedents in their corpus hermeticum. And I think it's important in this day and age because of the, um, you know, the sinister agenda of Kazaban to uh, c continue to reiterate and reemphasize the Egyptian influences because they are there. All right, so moving forward, this voice comes to Aramis, and as his mind is ranging and searching over everything, and he says, What do you wish to hear and behold? And having beheld, what do you wish to learn and know? Who are you? said I. He said, I am Poimandres, the noose of the Supreme. I know what you wish, and I am with you everywhere. So already he's identifying that he possesses knowledge of the inner mind of Aramis, and that he ha is omnipresent. So he possesses omniscience and omnipresence. Aramis responds, I wish to know the things that are and understand their nature, and to know God. Oh, how I wish to hear these things. He spoke to me again. Hold in your noose all that you wish to learn, and I will teach you. So this is significant because the noose of the supreme, the noose of 
you can't even, you could say God, the universe, but either, either, any of these terms would be limiting because, because the, it's transcendent to even those terms. You're talking about the supreme, the highest spiritual consciousness, the mind of the infinite. But the mind of the infinite speaks to Hermes and says, the spiritual mind of the infinite, the noose, and it says, hold in your noose these things. So he's also, the noose itself, with the big N, is saying, you have the same, within you, you have what I am. And in that, hold what I show you. You understand what I'm saying? Because of hermetic yeah. as above, so below, the man or the god, Hermes, um, he has the noose within him as well. And that's what enables him to receive the gnosis from the noose. If he lacked noose, noose could not impart to him the salvific knowledge, which then in turn, Aramis imparts to humanity. So Janice, we all, would you agree that we all have the seed of Logos? And I think you mentioned this in the last episode, but is the noose not um, shared equally amongst all? Well, the Corpus Hermeticum says that Logos is spread out among all beings. It's distributed throughout every throughout all of creation. But noose is set up as a prize for holy souls. I personally lean toward that perspective. I'm not one to argue with Hermes. Um, I do I don't think that you know this isn't necessarily some um, you know liberal egalitarian everybody gets noose situation. You know? Logos is available to everyone and by logos we may reach noose but you have to be worthy. You have to make yourself worthy. So everyone is potentially able to find noose. I think that those people who desire noose desire it because of noose. I think those people who do not know of noose or who know of noose but do not desire noose lack the noose, the potential for noose. Because I'm also a Gnostic and I do believe, I don't believe that necessarily all people are capable of liberation. Um, I'm also open to being shown otherwise, but I think that at least some people have the potential to attain to the noose. I, I don't know, I don't know that all people are uh, capable of that, but I think some are. And among those people, the pious, the devoted, the disciplined, the focused, those are the ones who will be judged to be worthy. But the most important portion of all those qualities is goodness. You have to, you have to love goodness with all your heart and soul. Okay, and I want to talk about God um, as good later, a little bit later. Um, so anything more to say about the actual creation? Yeah, yeah, I uh, do. Yeah, so so it's interesting because after Noose had spoken with Hermes, he transformed. Remember, Hermes is perceiving this vision through his own Noose. And he saw, perceived a vast expanse. And within the vast expanse, there was perfect illumination, 
gentle, a fine, intelligent light, a spirit. And then within that spirit, there came to be this uh, awful, downward-moving darkness, which was grasping and twisting and unfolding and fearful and terrible and shaking. The darkness became a watery substance, which was thundering and shaking and emanating smoke and mourn, mournful, a mournful, sorrowful echo. Then there was a cry uh, that Aramis thought actually was from the light. So out of the light came forth the Holy Logos, and the Holy Logos entered into the watery darkness, which caused pure fire to leap from the watery substance and rise up insubstantial, piercing fire, active fire. The air followed the breath, which is pneuma or spirit, and mounted up until it reached the fire. Away from the water and earth, which were mingled together, the earthy element was mingled with the watery element, and they were sort of a massa confusa of what the alchemists would call the prima materia, um, but these things were kept in motion by the breath of the word, the logos, which passed over them within hearing. Now, anybody with a passing familiarity with the Genesis narrative should be able to, to see clear parallels with the spirit of God moving on the waters of darkness there. Um, and Poimandri's actually asked Hermes, do you, have you understood this? Do you understand what you just saw? And Hermes said, I will come to know it. And then he explained that the light is Nous, who existed prior to the watery su substance, which appeared out of the darkness. The clear word from Nous, the Logos, the, is the Son of God. So again, we have these close, close parallels between the Christian Gnostic tradition and the Hermetic tradition. Um, and then he says something very important here, which, which needs to be remembered by all aspiring Hermetists and all, all aspiring Gnostics. That, know this, he said, that which sees and hears within you is the word of the Lord, and Nous is God the Father. They are not separate from each other, for their union is life. So it's expressing that, again, like we talked about in the last podcast, Logos and Nous are not separate from each other. There's a union between them. There's a oneness between them. And I, so is it saying that the combination of Nous and Logos is what creates life? Or it is life, essentially, or is there a difference? It is life itself, and that even goes, I mean, we could we could riff on that, too, because sure. the, the union of nous and logos is life. Well, life in Greek is zoe. Zoe is a name for Sophia, uh, who is, of course, the, the, the uh, maternal uh, component of the Christian Gnostic Trinity, the feminine, the feminine character of the Holy Spirit is Sophia, and she is that which links the Father and the Son. So when you say the union of the Logos, the Son, and the Father, the Nous, is life, 
um, to somebody, you know, to somebody familiar with the Gnostic tradition, that would make a lot of sense. So life is Zoe, uh, which is an emanation of Sophia, Zoe Sophia, which, which in fact is actually, again, we're going back to the Genesis here because Zoe Sophia is the, considered to be almost the, the holy guardian angel or the spiritual, the spiritual self or the genius of Eve. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so you're, so she is, Zoe life is considered to be the, 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 the archetypal form. Now, in addition to that life, the con, the Zoe as an archetype, of course, is the, the reason the union, Zoe is the union between Logos and Nous is be also because Zoe is the pattern of all patterns of all forms of life. So it, it is the pattern of all forms of life, like as one thing, which later differentiates into a multiplicity of beings. Very so cool. moving forward, uh, when he had spoken, you know, and also Nus isn't just like, you know, he's just not also just not always like, it's this like happy go lucky guy. Like, you know, he Hermes is, Hermes, we're talking Hermes, is impressed with him in a way of like awe and almost terror at times because you're dealing with a truly vast, uh, magnificent and infinitely, you know, infinitely wiser being than you, a, a being that knows that the details of the contents of your own spiritual mind, not to mention every other aspect of you, that is the noose. And so at one point he says, and when he had thus spoken, he looked at me full in the face for a long time so that his form made me tremble because of the sense of, you know, there's this awe, which is, you know, uh, Stephen Heller made a great point once a long time ago where he said, you know, where he was talking about in one of his lectures that the fear of God that people talk about, the fear of the Lord might be better translated as the awe of the Lord or the awe, because it's the sort of the awe that you have before something tremendous and supernatural. You know, think of the awe that you would have before, you know, maybe the Northern Lights or a tremendous... The Grand Canyon. You know, Grand Canyon, yeah, 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 or tsunami or something. You know, there's a sense of majesty and awe, but also this it's almost a sense of terror just at the magnitude of what stands bef- before you and how infinitesimally small you feel, in, you know, in comparison to it. But after he had, after Noose had looked at him in the face, he saw in his own Noose, in his own Noose, that the light was in innumerable powers, having become an infinite world. He saw a fire encompassed by a mighty power, being under command to keep its place. And he was seeing all these things by the word of Poimandres. He was amazed. And Poimandres said to him, you saw in Nus the first form, mm-hmm. which is prior to the beginning of the beginningless and endless. So he saw the primal archetype, the archetype of archetypes. I find it pretty interesting that it's a mixture of fire and water. I mean, how much more opposite can you get? For me, that's a very kind of yin-yang um, Symbology. I mean, fire mixed with water is. I mean, they're they're total opposites. And to be mixing together and then give birth to 
everything else is very interesting to me. Well, and anybody familiar with the Kabbalah will see, you know, the Hokmah and Bina, you know, the two the two spheres there. And I also think that anybody familiar with alchemy will immediately uh, see in, um, you know, in uh, Book One uh, Five in the Corpus Hermeticum, you know, an allegory of the alchemical process because you have this again this massa confusa, and then the elements are separated where. You have the air and light and fire rising up and being separated, and then the earth and water remain mingled. But and then those are kept in emo- those are kept in motion by the word, which is the breath. Now, any practicing alchemist would immediately be able to go, "Oh yeah, well that's that's talking about the alchemical process, absolutely." But really, what it is is that the alchemical process reproduces this cosmogenesis within the retort. Very cool. Um, so then he asks Poimandres, where, whence do the elements of nature have their origin? So you almost anticipated what was next. Uh, he said, from the will of God, holding the logos and seeing the beautiful cosmos made one exactly like it, fashioned from her own constituent elements and the offspring of souls. Nous, God being male and female, beginning his life and light, gave birth by the logos to another Nous, the creator of the world. This news, being the god of air and fire, forms seven powers who encompass in their circles the sensory world, and the governance of these powers is called destiny. You wanted to talk about this chapter because it's actually very significant. And you know, news being male and female, beginning as life and light, gave birth by word to another news, the creator of the world, who forms seven powers who encompass in their circles the sensory world. The governance of these powers is called destiny. So yeah, this brings us to uh, another topic that I want to touch on was this term um, or the, this designation of another noose. Um, and you also find later in the Corpus Hermeticum a uh, reference to the second god, um, also the brother of man. Um, this is definitely describing a demiurge type character. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, there's, it's, it's, it's unarguable evidence um, because, you know, so you have the primary noose which exists really in a, in a more immaterial realm, you know, being, being impure in its nature. Um, this noose emanates via the Logos, indicating that the Logos is actually prior to the Demiurge, the Demiurge. So the Logos, again, we've talked about it in the past podcast. The Logos is, is, a, is, is among other things, a form-giving principle. So the noose emanates, and through the Logos, this second God comes into being. And then this second God emanates seven powers from himself, seven rulers, who are the rulers of the material world. Now, when it talks about they encompass in their circles the sensory world, and the govern- their governance is called destiny. What it's talking about is the movement of the planets and the influence of the planets of the cosmos on the fate of beings on Earth. Mm-hmm. And that's that's destiny. You know that, and that's 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 what astro- That's that that's what's predicated by astrology. Right. You know, is the idea of this of this destiny, right? This demiurge, which is 
basically just called the cosmos, is also called the brother of man. So man, jumping ahead, is is like the um, Adam man from, oh God, maybe is uh, is it the the hypostasis of of the archons, like yeah. the anthropos, the cosmic man. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And this is also, this is the same cosmic man or the man of light. You could say that when the Demiurge says, well, there's there's no one but me, you know, and then Sophia says, you know, you, you, you err, you sin, Samael, there's, there, there's the man of light. And then he sees in the water as the reflection of the celestial man. So again, we see, we see this, this in both traditions, another parallel, the idea that the, the cosmic man is actually prior to, or ontologically prior, or you could even say superior to, the uh, God who's created this sphere. I think it is the secret book of John also, they talk about uh, this cosmic man coming before. Yeah, yeah. And so that's significant because it is almost a wake-up call to sleeping humanity to say, you know, wake up, listen, you come from, you come from a place that is superior to this realm, and you are not subject to this ruler because you are from something higher. You actually have authority over this ruler, it, but it has to be, it has to awaken. You know, you can, you, that's that's the key, and that's what these that's what all of this is aimed toward is the awakening of the man of light. You know, I think in maybe it's in the Gospel of Philip, or or or, or it's in the Gospel of Thomas. You know, there's a saying that there is a man of light within the man of light, and he lights up the whole world. Hmm. And that man of light is nothing other than the anthropos in each illuminated human being, because each each human being who awakens to gnosis the anthropos awakens within them the atom who is sleeping in each man or eve in each woman you know the spiritual atom or the spiritual eve of each man or woman when they attain to the gnosis of the light that awakens within them okay this may or may not be a good segue into the next topic i want to talk about um since we're talking about the cosmic man and the spheres, perhaps this is a good way to segue in. Um, I did want to talk about the significance of spheres and circles in hermetism, as well as in esoteric systems in general. I know in Platonism, the circle was um, the most divine of all the shapes, and I believe I believe it was Platonism which said that the human head was was created in a circle to reflect this divinity. Um, so what can you say about circles and spheres, and how, how do they relate, and what's their significance? Well, it's, it's good you brought that up, because that's an, in the narrative, that's the next thing that's discussed, actually. Okay. Uh, after the, you know, the, the seven powers are discussed, the Logos then leapt from those elements... And um, back to the creator noose, and the downward moving elements of the creation were left behind to to settle down into matter. So you know we're talking about the spiraling 
almost like a spiral nebula or a galaxy or, you know, co- you know, again, we're talking cosmogenesis here. So the, the lighter elements are rising, the lower elements are settling. Think of how if you've ever mixed like oil and water in science class as a kid or, you know, sediment, oil and water, you spin it up, it's all mixed together. Then as it slows down, the, the heavier elements come to rest on the bottom, the, the medial element in the middle, and then the lighter elements on top. So this is kind of like describing the process that occurred. Now, Noose, the creator, remember this is the second Noose, together with the Logos, took the spheres and spinning them around with the rushing motion caused those things he had made to revolve, and he allowed them to revolve from no fixed beginning to an end without limit, for it begins where it ends. This is depicted sometimes in antiquity by the Ouroboros, the serpent swallowing its own tail. Um, This at times is associated with Kronos or Saturn, of course, um, but as well represents, generally speaking, the movement of cosmic time, the movement of the cosmos, the revolution of the spheres. The harmony of the spheres. Yes, yeah. So, and the, it's significant because at this point in the narrative, it describes how these rotating spheres produced different things. Um, the downward moving elements brought forth, the, the, the noose brought forth through these rotating spheres living beings without speech, animals, from the downward-moving elements, and the air element produced winged creatures, and the water the creatures of of the water. Then earth and water were separated from each other, so now we see earth and water being separated where before they were actually congealed. Okay? And then the earth brought forth from herself uh, animals, reptiles, beasts, wild and tame. So at this point then... Before we get into the reflection thing, um, you know, I want to go back to the spheres and circles. So in the Corpus Hermeticum, it talks about how the universe is made of interlocking uh, spheres or circles, which move in contrary directions. So it's a contrapuntal uh, movement. And this this they move each other so there is a there is a um there is a counterpoint pointing counterpoint you know mm-hmm. it's like a chiaroscuro almost or like you were talking about yin and yang it's not dissimilar to that but the but the symbol i like to use to to uh contemplate this is actually the caduceus itself because you see the spiraling serpents around the central staff. At each level that the serpents spiral, if you were to look at it in two dimensions, you might see a circle. But in three dimensions, it becomes a spiral. The spiral motion is the same motion of the of the universe. It's like the cosmic clock. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is a very important thing to understand. It's a very... It's a very central concept in the Corpus Hermeticum and therefore in Hermetic theology, the idea of the, the contra-rotating spheres. Okay, I prefer the stripper on the stripper pole. <laughs> but the same kind of motion, and yeah, we're going to move into that um, 
topic, um, book two of the Corpus Hermeticum, if you're if you're good to do that. Yeah. Okay. Um, did you want to talk about the reflection? Does that come? Do you think we should do that first? Does that come? Um, does that seem to? Yeah, because it's next to the narrative, actually. So. Okay, so the next topic, which which we're moving forward in the book, um, is the point where it's it's uh, line twelve or saying twelve. I don't know how you want to uh, define it, but um, God creating man and man in God's image in Poimandres. Can you speak to that? Because for me, when I read that, there's this looking into the water, or looking into looking. God looking at his reflection. So I don't know. I don't think it actually talks about water, but it's God looking at his own reflection in man and and loving that man resembles God. And for me, immediately that speaks to narcissists and that whole legend. And also this connection when we start talking about looking into a mirror, looking into the water, um, the, the barbello and the first thought and this watery kind of significance oh yeah well it, it's i think it it goes very deep narcissus is 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 very much a part of this uh <clears throat> so you know noose brought forth man and man loved his love noose or i'm sorry noose loved man as his own child because noose contained the form man contained the form of noose right uh what's interesting and so then you know after man is man uh, had observed in the Father the creation of the Creator, man also wanted to be a creator. And so in order to do this, he had to be, man had to then sort of come into being or be begotten in the Creator's sphere, because remember, noose is actually in a higher sphere than the second noose. The Creator God or the Creator mind is on a lower lower tier of reality than the pure noose. So so the, the human... In, who wants to participate in the act of creation then has to sort of descend or become embodied or become begotten in the sphere of the creator. Okay, so are you saying that it's the creator God looking at man as a reflection of himself? I didn't catch no, that. No, no, I'm saying the pure nooses okay. looking at man that way, but then man seeing the process of creation and the creation of the creator Man wants to participate in that as well. And so then man enters into the next tier down where the creator noose is present. And that's why the creator noose is being described as his brother. Right, right. So man contains not only the celestial noose, or rather, I don't want to say celestial, that's not totally accurate. But, you know, the higher noose, man is not only of the higher noose, but then acquires a nature and character in himself, also of the second noose, or the creator noose. This is significant because it says that man, it's not that man is just like, it's not like saying mankind or man, you come from the highest noose, but you're trapped by this lower noose, you know what I mean? Or you're in this lower realm. It's saying, man, you not only have the power of this, the upper noose, but you also are a brother to the creator of this world, and you contain the same powers that the world creator holds. So it's showing man as a literal equal of the demiurge. Right. For me, it's reminiscent of what we talked about in the last podcast of 
the Platonic cosmology where man is given essentially the leftovers from the cosmic soul, but n- nonetheless he still shares in the cosmic soul. He's not elevated. He's not elevated to the same level as he is in the Hermetic system. Right. Well, it gets even more interesting then too because man possesses this sort of enthusiasm at that point after participating in the process with the creator man wants to take it even further Mm -hmm. and so man then goes another step and he wants to break through the circumference of the spheres the planets the seven and come to know the power of the one who was set in authority over the fire so then man sort of man sort of breaks through each level of reality, the, the, the anthropos, the, the cosmic human, breaks through the levels of reality, and what does he see? He sees nature, which is the, the, the downward-moving nature. Remember the dark matter and water? So he's looking down on these dark waters now, because he's basically the celestial man has penetrated with his perception all the way down to the lowest strata of reality now, where the darkness and the water are present, the watery darkness. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens here is, an, is, is another analog to that first moment described where Noose is delighting in his emanation of mankind, but this time, nature, using the metaphor of water being like a mirror, nature reflects the form of God within herself. So downward moving nature ends up creating a reflection of the celestial human. And just as Noose loved the celestial human, when the celestial human being sees its own reflection in the water, it falls in love with it immediately. And be, when it falls in love with it, it become, it's, it gets drawn into the form within the watery matter. Would you say this is like a fractal kind of unfolding, the as above, so below? It's very as above, so below. There's an, absolutely an analogical process going on here because we have noose emanating man who is in his image, and then we see man looking down into nature and then nature reflecting man and man entering into the reflection. And man walking through a mirror and getting... Then man walks through the mirror and becomes lost in the realm of the reflection. And this necessarily isn't isn't a great thing. I mean, the story right. of, the story of narcissus is not necessarily a positive story. It's there's definitely a neurosis. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I think that I think that there's so much going on here that you can impact too, because there is this positive turn here. Where, where it describes nature as being in love with man mm-hmm. and, you know, nature having enfolded her beloved, taken her beloved, enfolded him completely and they united for they loved each other. So there is this sense of, you know, the cosmic human falls in love with its reflection, of course, because the reflection of the cosmic human is, the, is, is actually an image of noose. So, of course, he would fall in love with the image of noose, which is his own image, because like attracts like, which is also a hermetic principle. But by falling in love with this image, there ends up being a union between that which is temporary, changing, 
and impermanent and that which is permanent and eternal. And so then the Corpus Hermeticum says, of all living beings on earth, man alone is double, mortal because of the body, immortal because of the real man. For although being immortal and having authority over all, he suffers mortal things which are subject to destiny, then although above the harmony of the cosmos, he has become a slave within it. He is beyond gender as he has been born from a father beyond gender, and he never sleeps as he is ruled by one who never sleeps. So you see here the this, dual nature yeah. man. This reminds me of the the view that Plotinus had of the soul, which um, I, I think Iamblichus disagreed with, but Plotinus believed that man had soul on earth, and then there was also kind of a a soul that remained up in heaven, and that seems like what's being talked about yes. here. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. It's the mystery of the twins, mystery of the double, because there, you know, there is an element of the celestial that never departs, of the upper realm that never, the upper man that never leaves the upper man, and likewise, I mean, but in man there is a mystery because there's a uniting of heaven and earth in the human being. The human being is literally that 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 joining that joining point that union point where the upper realities and the lower realities meet in one thing you can also see pretty clearly at least i can the the book of baruch here as well oh yeah where so, elohim elohim and edem fall in love edem essentially being uh, earth or matter or nature and it's it's Nature, sorry, and yeah, it's very similar. Yeah, you're. I, I completely agree with you. Um, and we might actually want to do a show to talk about the Book of Baruch because it's a fascinating text, and it's not quite like any other text. Um, so, I mean, it is and it isn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, to make a long story short, nature ends up bringing forth actually seven human beings. Uh, each one of this, each one of the nature of each of the seven spheres, the seven, so you know the seven classical planets, the Ptolemy, according to the Ptolemaic scheme, um, and then man, and then then man um, ends up at the, after that, then becoming material and separating into gender, because prior to this. Everything is androgynous, which is a throwback to the Platonic myth as well. But after the separation of the seven humans, then after this cycle of creation, and it actually calls it a cycle of creation, um, the bodies produced was after the after this point, the bodies produced then began to separate into the dual gender. Okay, so this is also a reflection of the previous cycle where man descends and joins with nature because you have, mm -hmm. again, this is not physical. We're not talking about physical gender here, but the, the feminine gender is used to describe nature and the masculine gender is just used to describe man, but it's, it must be understood that both are actually androgynous powers. Nature is described as female because she receives because of the receptive quality of the watery uh, of, of the watery abyss that receives the reflection 
of the heavenly quality of the celestial human. But they're both androgynous powers, but you have a male and female here which unite. And then after that, the production of the, of, of, of the joining together of these two forms of consciousness produces gendered beings after a creation cycle. This is significant because, because the male and female separation into genders is a reflection of the uniting that came earlier. And again, those who are familiar with alchemy might actually, uh, might actually recognize the phase of the conjunctio in the descent of the heavenly man into the watery matter. Okay. I've got two more big points I want to hit on um, if, if we want to move forward. Sure. And I, I want to touch on like something that I just find amusing is just that, you know, like, you know, like I said, Hermes, he doesn't stay on top of this with Noose because Noose, he may be God and everything, but he's not playing with Hermes. Like he needs to stay on top of the game because like Hermes says, in what terrible way do the ignorant go wrong that they have been deprived of immortality? He said, you seem not to have taken heed of the things you have heard. Did I not tell you to keep these things in mind? So news, you know, like if you have, I'm just letting you know, and anybody in the future, if you like meet news, don't ask stupid questions and you need to pay attention. There are a lot of kind of Zen Buddhist um, dialogues between teachers and students, and, and not even Zen, but just Buddhist in general, that are very similar where you have this student who's very willing to learn, but he's hasn't emptied his cup quite fully and the teacher is is constantly kind of making sure he's he's on point yep <laughs> yep it's true so uh what did you what were those points you want to touch on god being good and god is explained and described as being good in the corpus hermeticum the ultimate god would you agree with that? Uh, yes, very much so. Okay. And this is, I mean, obviously Plato's God was called the Good. And in the book of Baruch, again, the ultimate God is called the Good. Um, so there's a theme here that God is good. But for me, I, I struggle with this idea of goodness. Um, and it, it's it maybe just me being naive, but, but I did find some some very interesting things that made me change, kind of change my mind in the Corpus Hermeticum. Um, for me, God being good, it's it's hard to wrestle with that, and I, I know a lot of people wrestle with that, just the mainstream religious people wrestle with, well, if God is good, how can there be evil? Um, what I found in the Corpus Hermeticum, which I found very valuable, is a kind of a via negativa. So God is good because he's lacking things that make him evil so he doesn't take he only gives right so it, it's just an an overflowing fountain of of charity yes there's no taking there's no taking he lacks nothing so which means he desires nothing so there's no there's no wanting which which creates suffering that, that wanting he can't he can't lose anything because he has everything right. so he can't grieve he can't grieve over anything. So all these things like grieving, losing, um, taking, these all create suffering and, and evil, essentially. 
Um, and there's no one mightier and no one wiser. So there's no possibility for any kind of jealousy. So for me, this is a great way to explain how God is good. And it, it reminds me back, going back to the secret book of John, once again, um, this via negativa. So not all of the secret book of John is a, a negative theology. There's definitely some positive descriptors used, but in the secret book of John, the one is without bond, boundaries, um, cannot be investigated, cannot be measured, cannot be seen, um, it's inconceivable, no one can comprehend it, indescribable, incomprehensible, not perfect, not blessed, not divine, it's uh, neither physical nor unphysical, neither immense nor infinitesimal, um, it's impossible to specify in quantity or quality, for it's beyond knowledge. It's not a being among other beings. It's vastly superior, but it's not superior. So this use of paradox is pretty powerful. And in the uh, Sophia of Jesus Christ, it also has a similar way to describe God. It's uh, He has no birth, for everyone who has a birth will perish. He has no beginning. Everyone who has a beginning has an end. No one rules over him. He has no name, for whoever has a name is the creation of another. So I think this is a really, for me, a great way to kind of warp my mind and, and, and see God. And that descriptor in the Corpus Hermeticum of, of how he is good is, plays right into this. And for me, it, it helps me see this goodness. I think that was really well said. I, I thought you succinctly... Uh, summarized it. I, I was. I, I don't know that I have a ton to add to what you uh, put there, but I think that maybe if I just rewind a touch, I can add something to it. Sure. So after the creation narrative, where it, you know goes through those phases, man unites with nature, and nature produces seven seven humans, or you could almost say astral forms. And then after that, the bond was loose and genders were separated. And then, then there is a multiplication that occurs. So what we see here is also a descent from unity to, into multiplicity. Oh, um, we go from seven. Right. And then, you know, you could infer that the seven humans were also divided into a male and female form. And then those became formative causes of the generations of creatures in the material realm, including material humans. All these things bred, you know, that it, it increased, multiplies what happens next. And so the consciousness then becomes differentiated through a multiplicity of beings. Uh, the differentiation of consciousness produces a sort of unconsciousness almost like going underwater when you just get into water and then you get pulled underneath when you first jump in. There's a sort of submerging of consciousness that occurs through multiplication and differentiation of form. Now, it describes after that the reverse of the process for the individual human. So... Initially, we were talking about the cosmic human, and then we go through the process whereby the cosmic human enters essentially into the underworld, 
unites with nature, um, becomes many humans through gender, which you know produces uh, breeding, which produces multiplication and differentiation. So the one becomes many, and then among the many, there are many individuals. And in those individuals, the potential for awakening can, is possible. Now, to backtrack here to your question about noose, there, this is addressed in the Corpus Hermeticum and Poimandres. Uh, noose, uh, Hermes actually says, do not all men have noose? Mark your words, he replied. I, noose itself, come to the aid of the devout, noble, pure, merciful, and those who live piously, and my presence becomes a help, and straightway they know all things. I will not allow the activities of the body which assail them to have effect. I shall close the entrances to evil and dishonorable actions, cutting off their strategies. So, so Noose describes that only people who elevate themselves and live a clean and good life become worthy of the reception of noose. And this is not just behave and you'll be rewarded. This is also attuning yourself. When you live a pure life, when you become pious, when you are noble and pure and merciful, you start to, you start to reflect the eternal qualities of the Father, of the good. And the more you become like the good, the more capable you become of reflecting the good and incarnating the good within yourself. Um, so that's so the man who starts that process then the man who starts that process uh, then starts to rise through the planes and has to go through those same seven spheres. He has to go through all seven of those realms that he descended, that the original cosmic humanist descended through until they hit the eighth plane, the realm of the Ogdoad, which is actually the sphere of Hermes. With, he joins with people in that realm and then ascends to the ninth, which in the Gnostic scriptures is the realm of the angels who sing a hymn to the Father. From the ninth, we get to the Pythagorean ten. The, the, the all, which is the entry to the pleroma, the union with all things. And so with that union, that unio mystica, we see again another analog to um, the union process. You know, there's a lesser conjunction and a greater conjunction. The lesser conjunction is the conjunction of the incarnation of the immaterial, primordial human into nature, the greater conjunction is the ascent of the individual human being who has attained noose through the spheres to to be one again with the with the great noose, the the true, the highest noose, the the good, the supreme good. And then this is this has, this is almost this almost can bring you to tears. This part. And I engraved in myself the beneficent kindness of Poimandres, and having been filled with what I desired, I was delighted. For the sleep of the body became the sobriety of the soul, the closing of the eyes became true vision, my silence became pregnant with the supreme good, and the utterance of, word, of the word became the generation of riches. All this came to me who had received it from my noose, that is to say, from Poimandres, the word of the Supreme. I have come, divinely inspired by the truth, 
Wherefore I give praise to God the Father with my whole soul and strength. Holy is God the Father of all. Holy is God whose will is accomplished by his own powers. Holy is God who wills to be known and is known by those that are his own. Holy art thou who by the word has united all that is. Holy art thou of whom nature became an image. Holy art thou whom nature has not created. Holy art thou who is stronger than all power. Holy art thou who art higher than all preeminence. Holy art thou who surpasses praises. Receive pure offering of speech offered to you by inner mind and heart. Thou who art unutterable, vast beyond description, who art spoken of by silence. So this prayer not only is a hymn of praise, but as a recitation of the entire process we that, that we discussed, a process that is made possible by the supreme good. And the Corpus Hermeticum says everyone uses the term good, but what it is, not everyone perceives. On account of this, God is not perceived by everyone, but in ignorance they call gods and certain men good who can never and can never become good. The Supreme God is not at all alien to God. It is inseparable from Him, as it is God Himself. All other immortal gods are honored by the name of God. However, God is good not by being honored, but by His nature. For the nature of God is one, supreme goodness. God and goodness are one generative power from which come all generations. He who gives all and takes nothing is good. God gives all and takes nothing. So God is the supreme good, and the supreme good is God. You know, there's an old saying, goodness is its own reward. You know, you don't do good. You don't do good because you want people to see you doing good, like the philanthropist who wants his name put on something he donated to. That's not really goodness. It may be a, it may be a mitigated beneficence, but this is why goodness is its own reward. Goodness, you do good, you think good, you speak good because it expresses the nature of the Father within you, because it expresses your nature. Those who come from that place know that they and the Father are one, and so what they do reflects this knowledge, the knowledge of the one, which is the good. Very nice. Thank you, Janice. Well, there we go. The second episode is complete, and we had a lot of fun with that one. I think we were able to go pretty deep. Um, there was a ton that got edited out. There's a lot on the cutting room floor, mainly me mispronouncing words, but it's better that you didn't hear all that, although it was pretty funny. Next episode, I want to continue on the Hermetic Theology and go a little bit deeper into that. I'm sure that will be very easy to do. There's just so much material and so many different roads we can go down with with this. Um, so that's what we're going to do next episode. I just want to say a special thanks to everyone who gave us support and gave us positive feedback from our last episode. All those 12 people on Facebook who liked us, thank you. That was awesome. <laughs> uh and there were quite a few people who shared us on Facebook, which was great as well. So we're just trying to get the word out. We're 
really just trying to start conversation. That's that's pretty much it. We want conversations to happen, and if we can illuminate some things that someone hadn't thought about before, then mission accomplished. Um, so thanks for the Facebook likes, especially Mr. Fijnana Nath. And on YouTube, thank you for all the positive feedback and kind words. Uh, Mr. Rich Prunes, Mr. Alex Rivera, and we're going to have Alex on the show soon. Mr. Vayu Tiger, and Jan Roxit. And Jan shared us to her study group on Facebook, Neo Esoteric Mystery School. So please check out what she has going on there. Okay, I think that covers it, and it was fun. Hope you liked it. If you didn't, well, send emails to Janice. Um, you can attention Janice at admin at the Magician and the Fool podcast. Um, seriously, though, you can you can check us out on YouTube. You can check us out on Facebook and our website, themagicianandthefool.com. Okay, see you next time. <laughs>